You know, boundaries were always difficult for me because I wanted to be the easy one. You know, she can just go with the flow. And then, you know, you find yourself in a situation where you're really uncomfortable and it doesn't feel good. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice. And we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Juliana Margulies. You probably know her as Alicia Florek, her character on the hit TV drama, The Good Wife, or as Carol Hathaway on ER. Today, Juliana is one of the most awarded actresses in television with Emmys, Golden Globes, and multiple Screen Actors Guild Awards to her name. She's also the author of a children's book and of her own memoir, which came out earlier this year. Not to mention, she was also listed as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in 2015. And now you can catch her on season two of The Morning Show, which is streaming on Apple TV. Juliana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hi, guys. Hello. We're so excited. We are very, very excited. Before we get into the conversation, we're going to do a warm-up with a lightning round. So quick questions, quick answers. Ready? I'm ready. Okay, good. First job on your resume. First job on my resume, out for justice. Most recent job on your resume. The morning show. Do you have a secret hobby or skill? A secret hobby or skill. Oh boy. Well, I knit. Really? Really? What do you knit? (laughs) I haven't knit in a long time, but I used to knit baby sweaters. That's what I would do on sets all the time. No way. All my friends were having babies and I would just whip up sweaters. I was really not expecting this answer. Okay. Yeah. That was your go-to baby gift? Yeah. Okay. Are you an inbox zero person? I'd like to think of myself that way, but unfortunately I don't live that way, but I, I really would like to be a zero inbox person for sure. What is the last show you binge watched? Mayor of Easton. Ooh, so good. Yeah. Okay. You can literally in real life become one of the three characters you have played. Carol Hathaway. Alicia Florek or your latest Laura Peterson? Which one do you choose? Oh my God, that's a great question. <laughs> I just want to remind you, you're with George Clooney with Carol Hathaway. I think I would be Laura Peterson. Oh. oh wow, you're leaving Carol in Seattle. Okay. I think I could do journalism. I don't think I could ever do law. Okay. You you left the twins. It's fine. We're, we're good. Okay. That also makes me really excited for the season. What's to come? Yeah. One person you want to have at a dinner party, living or dead? Stephen Fry. He's alive. Go on. <laughs> so Stephen, if you're listening, please come over for dinner. I'll cook you whatever you want. Go that on. is a great way to invite someone. Yeah. What is the last photo you took on your phone? Oh, it was of my dog. What kind of dog do you have? I have a woodle. Oh, I have a sheep doodle <laughs> I have a golden doodle. So yeah, they're, they're all doodles in this neighborhood. <laughs> We're all a little basic. It's okay. <laughs> all right. Should we go into the show? Let's do it. Okay. So growing up, you wanted to follow in your grandmother's footsteps and become a lawyer. And then in college, you discovered theater. How did you become a professional actor from there? So I think, I feel like things were easier back then, but maybe I'm wrong. I starred in a lot of plays in college and I sent my headshot out 
about six months before I graduated from college with the knowledge that I would have plays coming up. So I invited agents to come and see me and I got an agent right before I graduated college and started auditioning right away. And then, you know, it's a snowball effect. I was doing a lot of regional theater. Then I got my SAG card in that Steven Seagal movie. And then I did a Law & Order, which is what every New York actor and actress does. That's how you keep up your health insurance for those SAG-AFTRA. And then literally, I went to visit a boyfriend in Los Angeles who was on a show. And I went to an audition for something called ER. And there you go. Wow. I did not know ER was so early in your career. Yeah, I was 25 when I got the pilot of that. So Wow. And when you look back at yourself at 25, when you got the pilot, because I'm thinking back to when we were 25, we started the company. And now it feels like it was early in my career. But at the time, it felt like I'd been in it. So when you got the ER role, talk about what your plan was, because what I thought was interesting in reading about you is that you kind of always had like these deals with yourself, these fallback plans. Uh, I did. I did. No, I love hearing it. So I'm like, wow, I did. That was very advantageous of me, actually. I wasn't interested in a life of suffering. (laughs) I really wasn't. And I'd never looked at acting as a noble profession, so to speak, because having watched my grandmother conduct her life through being one of the first female lawyers in New York State to have, I mean, she started the Bar Association for Women in the Bronx because women weren't invited into the Men's Bar Association. They could take the bar exam, but they weren't welcome as members. And so she started her own, which exists today. So I always looked at her and I I sort of resembled her more than anyone else in my family. So I really thought I'll be the intellectual in this family. I'll be the intellect that goes out there and keeps going on the road that my grandmother paved. And I just realized I just don't have a head for contracts or fine print. I found anything to do with pre-law so boring. And when I got cast uh, in my first play in college, it was one of those lightning bolt moments where I just felt like this is where I belong. And so having decided that that's what I wanted to do, Mm -hmm. I thought, but I only want to do it if I'm good. And I only want to do it if I can make a living, if I can pay my rent. So I gave myself a five-year plan. And that five-year plan, it sort of changed year to year. So the first year was I'll waitress for a year. And if I don't start booking at least tiny supporting roles, and after a year of auditioning, I'm not getting any good feedback, I'll start looking to go back to grad school and do something else. If after five years, I am just managing to pay my rent Mm -hmm. and just eking out my grocery bill, I think that's a sign that maybe I need to re-examine my life. So with that behind me, I always went into these auditions with just a little bit more confidence because I knew that ultimately if they didn't want me, I'd figure it out. I'd figure a place out where people did want me and where I could do something with my life that felt meaningful to me. But luckily, I mean, really six months out of college, I got my SAG card, you know, in a bit part in a movie, but it snowballed from there. Can you talk about, and I know that you've told this story before, but when I've heard you tell it in the past, I'm always struck by it. What you thought ER was going to be when you shot the pilot and how it ended up changing and just what your mindset was before you got the contract. 
So yeah, I went out there, I got the audition and I got the part, which was just to play a guest star named Carol Hathaway in the pilot who comes in on a gurney at the end of the two hour pilot having OD'd. And you sort of see her throughout the pilot. I mean, it was a two hour pilot. I think my character had about seven to 10 minutes of screen time in a, in a two hour pilot. But it was very effective in how they shot it because whenever my character was at the medicine cabinet getting meds for her patients, she was putting some in her pocket for herself. And not that they ever paid attention to that. No one paid attention. If you rewatch the pilot, you can probably see her pocketing some, some medication. But the way they shot her coming in on the gurney was through George Clooney's eyes, the Dr. Doug Ross character. And so suddenly my character became important to the audience, the test audiences. You know, they have a knob when they test a pilot with audiences to see if audiences respond or not. And when I came in and I'm basically a pronounced brain dead, they all turned it to the left or right, whichever was I hate, hated. I think it was to the left. And that decision kept me alive. And I, I had come back to New York and thought I got to get another job before I have to wait tables again. And I had another job offer. And then George Clooney left me a message one day saying, I, I don't know if you're about to take another job, but don't because I think you're going to live. <laughs> oh my God. And I gambled on on his words, you know, I mean, that could have gone that could have gone really badly, but it didn't. I have like chills thinking about just like, <laughs> all of the circumstances there. It was really timing and luck and also having a nice rapport with my cast so that they actually cared to let me know, you know. So I mentioned at the top of the show when you joined, I was a huge ER fan, like Carol Hathaway, Doug, I know every episode. Obviously, it took off. You took off. We know George Clooney took off and many others on the show took off. I also very much remember that it was very publicized that you were offered, if this was true or not, a lot of money to stay on the show and you didn't. And I remember like really vividly like being in high school and being like, wow, I didn't know you people said no to money like that. <laughs> like I, And now being a woman in business, having a career podcast, I'm really trying to like channel back to where your head was at. Cause what a powerful moment to be given. It was a good amount of money. They were very financially incentivized to stay. And you said, no, why? Yeah, actually I have a chapter in my book that's called my decision. And I, I really explain it. I go into detail because I think however much I'm loath to speak of it again, it has defined me in this business that I'm in. And my father explained it to me the best because I was so sort of gobsmacked that my decision about something in my own life was anyone else's business. And the backlash from it was really harsh. It wasn't an easy decision. It was $27 million to stay for an extra two years on the show after I'd already completed my six-year contract. And I never spoke of it because I, I grew up, you know, it's like, you don't talk about money. You never ask a woman her age. You don't ask someone, you know, how much money they have in the bank account. Like there are certain things that are just, it's just how I grew up. No one's business. So I kept quiet about it. But what I realized and how my father explained it was that I turned down the American dream. Um, which is right. We all, the American dream is to be rich and famous and and I turned that down, basically, not because as many talking heads assume, because I thought I was going to be some huge movie star, but because I had already committed 
to doing a John Robin Bates play, a part that he had written with me in mind that I was going to do with Jason Robards and Ethan Hawke at Lincoln Center. I had already committed to playing the lead in The Mists of Avalon for TNT, a book I had revered as a child growing up and read it again in college. I mean, it was the part of a lifetime. So I had already booked a year of work before that offer came in. And when the offer came in, I had to weigh it heavily, of course, and I did. I, I went and I asked so many people their advice. Almost every single person told me, don't be stupid, take the money, don't be ridiculous, except my father. And my father said, what if you were on the street waiting for two years of your life to get by, to get rich, and a bus went up the curb and hit you. And as your soul was leaving your dead, mangled body on the side of the road, you looked down and said, was I living my truest life? Or was I just wasting time waiting to get rich? What are these decisions you're asking of yourself? Who do you want to be to yourself? And I was 32 years old with a fully paid off mortgage I had money in the bank, you know, not a ton, but to me it was. I I was single. I didn't have children. I didn't have a husband. And here I was about to go and do my dream play at Lincoln Center and then go off to Prague for four months to ride horses. So when he said that, and then I had this sort of outer worldly experience reading a book I picked out at random called Awakening the Buddha Within, where I just closed my eyes and opened a page and put my finger on it on a line, the line said, and I know people are gonna say that can't be true, but I don't know how I could make it up. It was so true and so shocking. The line said, I realized my mission in life was to learn more, not earn more. I was searching for help and it was like divine intervention if you believe in it, which at that moment I did. And I just thought, yeah, forge your own path. I love making money. I'm so grateful. I have money and I can support my parents and my child through school and the rest of it. But it's not the end all be all if you're not happy. I do think about that, how there's a diminishing happiness return right after a certain point of money that you make. I find it so interesting how you talk about your views on money and making this decision and what was driving you. Aside from your dad, Did you have a support system where there are mentors or other actresses or actors that you went to talk this out? So that was in 2000. And now the only person who was my mentor was my father at that point. Has that changed as you've obviously gone on to be an author and done more shows and gotten even more successful? What does your support system look like today? So I I know this is going to sound really corny, but one of the reasons I fell in love with my husband was because he's the most level-headed, smartest, he's truly, I think, one of the smartest people I've ever met. I mean, there's something about Keith, and it's not about just being intellectually smart, which he is, which can be annoying too, because he knows everything, (laughs) but he he just has such a, a solid heart not a bad bone in his body. He, he wishes no one ill will. There's no ulterior motives. You get what you see. And because he's also in the world of business, he is not a, although he loves Shakespeare, knows more Shakespeare and opera than I ever will, but he really is my mentor right now. For all my decisions 
not my creative decisions, but when I say that, like job decisions, we weigh them out together. Like he'll always say to me, will this job bring you joy? You know, like doing the morning show was in the middle of a pandemic. We had been locked down in upstate New York for eight months, just the three of us. And all of a sudden I'm being asked to get on an airplane and go to Los Angeles and leave my family who I had been caring for for eight months. And I said to him, I was just offered the morning show. It shoots in Los Angeles and we're in a pandemic. And he said, is it a good part? And I was like, yeah, it's a great part. And he goes, go, we'll be fine. And that kind of support system to have a husband who understands what I do and that in order for me to Listen, I'm really happy being a homebody. I'm really happy cooking dinner, but I have to do my job. Like, I don't feel fulfilled in my life fully if I'm not working. So for me, he has truly been my biggest supporter and mentor. And my dad continued to be up until the day he died seven years ago. He was always my go-to also. Mind you, they both, you know, they're both Dartmouth boys, so I don't know. (laughs) We both went to Dartmouth and they both were philosophy majors. I did not marry my father. But it's that kind of temperament, you know, that kind of understanding and looking a little more inward, not just at what's going to make a fast buck, but what makes your heart pound. When I'm listening to you, you're speaking with such a, such as like a sense of calm and purpose. And then I'm looking at the title of your memoir, Sunshine Girl. And you talk about how it was a nickname that your mom gave you, but it was actually something that you have a lot of mixed feelings about, it seems. And that at times that reputation of of being constantly smiley and happy and easygoing could actually backfire. And so I would love to just sort of hear that journey of sunshine girl and kind of the dualities of that to where you clearly have found like much more of a sense of calm and peace today. Yeah. And that's the subtitle of the book is An Unexpected Life because I never in a million years coming from my childhood expected to have this kind of calm and clarity. And it doesn't just come. (laughs) It takes a lot of work too. But um, Sunshine Girl was a nickname my mother gave me because I was an easy baby. I always smiled. I never cried. I wasn't demanding. And so she would always call me her Sunshine Girl which of course I wore as a badge of honor because that means she loved me. The problem when you label your children anything, whether it's, you know, sunshine girl or cranky pants or whatever you're going to name, choose to nickname them, is that then they feel they have to live up to that nickname in many ways, you know? So because it was such a, seemed like such a happy thing, it meant that even though my parents divorced when I was very, very young and We went off to live in Europe and then my mother had a gazillion boyfriends and I was just put into very uncomfortable situations often. I never voiced my anxiety and fear because I didn't want to upset anyone because I was the sunshine girl. You know, I was the one who was supposed to bring joy into the room. I know that my mother didn't do it out of any kind of disrespect. You know, it was just what you did. And you see how your children come out and then you put them in these boxes. But those boxes can be very confining. And so I learned to push down all my 
feelings and my fears and my anxiety. And I never talked about them. And in doing so, I learned to sort of surf this unsteady landscape that was my childhood, which was I never knew what country we were going to live in or what school I was going to or what boyfriend my mother was with or if I liked the one she was with, when she'd break up with him. You know, it was a lot of rocky terrain for a young girl to navigate. And then in my adult life, when I got out of college, the partner I picked, I didn't know it at the time, once I got out of this long, tumultuous relationship I and went into therapy, I realized, of course, I was with someone who was just as chaotic and unreadable as my mother, because I knew how to handle that. Or at least I thought I did. And I, it's what I knew, right? I could handle difficult. I know how to do that because then I'll be worshipped as the sunshine girl. And it literally was one of those things where he could have the worst temper and we'd get in the worst fights, but then I'd always be the hero because I'd make everyone happy. It was exactly repeating what I did as a child in many ways, but I wasn't conscious of it. And until I realized, actually, I don't like feeling this way, until I could really just say, actually, this doesn't feel good, but I never had the voice to say it until I was in my 30s. And I think for many women especially, I think we become much more familiar with our own feelings and who we really are. I started to blossom in my 30s. And once I could tap into that, even though it was scary, I could get away from that relationship and start the life I wanted. And I think that's why I waited so long before I got married. I just never felt good with someone else the way I felt good when I met my husband. I was 40 when I got married to him. We met when I was 39. But man, I never believed for a minute that I would ever feel sure about marriage or a life partner ever, because that just wasn't what I knew. This is a career podcast. Now I'm like, it needs to become a relationship one. I'm sorry. Like, no, I'm really. But I'm it all feeds really, into the career, actually. I love it. No, because I'm totally like eating up what you're saying. And, you know, you're talking about the journey of like really discovering who you are and what it is you need out of your life. And the truth is, I feel like both of us, he and I, have really blossomed in our careers because we have each other at home at the end of the day. Like, I feel like I can go out into the world and do anything without, I'll never, he'll never judge. He always has my back. I always have his back. Like, it, it gives me such confidence in my acting and in my career choice, just writing that book, I was like, I would say to him, this is crazy. I can't write a book. Why did I say yes? And he would just sit there and he goes, of course you can do that. You can do that. And the same way a, an unhealthy relationship can be toxic and you can start feeling whatever that person is putting onto you, a healthy relationship also has that effect in a good way, right? So the good energy gives you that impetus to go out into the world and say, no, actually, I can do this when you feel loved and cared for at home. I also think that's such a good reminder in this weird, not quite post-COVID, but we're not living for months without seeing other people, a reminder of the importance of having, I don't like the word 
balance because I don't think it's it's really attainable. But having that support, that life out of your job can also translate into actually making you better at what you are doing professionally. You've talked about not necessarily being the best at setting boundaries. And also your your job as an actress is to become different people, right? And the two, when you think about it, aren't necessarily compatible. I think for a lot of people, it becomes, you have to say no, but it's really hard to do it. What are some ways that you've gotten better at it? You know, boundaries were always difficult for me because I wanted to be the easy one. You know, she can just go with the flow. And then, you know, you find yourself in a situation where you're really uncomfortable and it doesn't feel good. And even in the workplace, like I realize now that just looking back at certain situations I was put in, and I don't know what it's like in an office. I, I've never really worked in an office. So I, but I imagine it. it's quite similar to working on a set, except on a set, you know, I'm supposed to emote in front of 150 people, that, <laughs> you know, and do a good job of a character. But the most important thing for me when I walk onto a set is that everyone is happy to be there. I need to have a good work environment in order to work. And I can't imagine what it must feel like to walk onto a set and have it be a toxic environment and then have to emote uh, that's just, you're asking too much of me to do that. That's hard. I don't know how to put blinders on. I mean, it could just be my nature or that I'm sensitive. I don't know. But I notice everybody in the room. I notice what they're wearing and I notice their moods and moods permeate any room. And if the mood is sour, I'm going to be worried. It's just who I am. So I really see how when I leave the house in the morning... I leave from a happy place. You know, I've worked very hard at making sure my house is not where the drama happens. I do that for a living. I'm not interested in living the drama. I like acting the drama. Even though I had tremendous love in my family and my book is, a, I dedicate it to my parents who I love very much, but I also was able to, I had a come to Jesus moment with both of them at different times in my life to make them take responsibility and apologize. I needed that in order to move forward. And the second that happened, it's just like everything for me loosened up and I opened myself up and I met the man I've been married to for almost 14 years. And like, there was just an ease and my friendships got richer and I wasn't as needy. Of I feel like I, I wasn't afraid anymore to be vulnerable with my friends. I didn't have to be the one that was always, I was always the girl at the party that everyone was coming and crying to. Even in high school, I just was that girl. I don't know why. So who did I cry to? But then once I got through that stuff and just found love for my parents, I was able to just be 100% truthful. And if you can be truthful in any aspect of your life, I think you're going to succeed at it. I want to give a chance to one of our listeners to ask you a question. And so Serena wrote into us and said, she would like to know how you have thought about reinventing your career at different stages and how she can approach that herself. It's a great question. You know, I think it sort of just happened naturally because it's like when I got Carol Hathaway, I was really young and and I was a newbie. And then I'm going to go with the, the sort of defining 
moments of my career because there were a lot of, you know, in-betweens. But I think when Alicia Florek happened for me, it was perfect timing because I was in my early 40s. I had just had a baby and I could really relate to so much of what she was going through. I think it was just a confluence of luck, you know, that the events that led up to my I want to say choices, but I feel like that's taking too much credit because the truth of the matter is, yes, I could have said no to Alicia Florek. I couldn't have said no to Carol Hathaway because I was, you know, just starting out. But I I could have said no to Alicia Florek, but there was no way I was going to let that moment pass me by. It was just uh, one in a million. And then all of a sudden to be doing the morning show with this character, who I think is a very solid She's really been through the ringer and she understands who she is 100%, so much more so than Alicia Florek ever could or would want to. So it's just been an interesting, I think, really confluence of luck for me to have gone through the stages I've gone through in my career and hopefully many more. I mean, I'm just going to keep getting older. So hopefully, unless I die. And with your age comes different jobs. I can't play certain things I used to, and I still can't play certain things I can't wait to play. But I do feel that in my 50s, Oprah Winfrey said this to me. I think it was Maya Angelou who said to her, your 50s are your golden years. They're going to be the best years of your life because you have such a sense of who you are. You have a history of what you've done, but you still have this incredible future of where you want to go. And especially today, as women, we have to embrace that. I uh, loved your your interview, the last one you did with Oprah. And she asked this question, but I'm going to ask it and hopefully I'll get a different answer. Okay. Because I wasn't happy with it. But <laughs> would you ever revisit playing Alicia Floor? I miss her. I do. I'll be honest. I do miss her a lot. And honestly, I really was excited to go back and play her on The Good Fight. It was a great arc that they had given me the outline of. And I'm I'm sad that I didn't get to do it, but I had to stand up for myself. Yeah. And I had to stand up for women coming up and say, like, you can't ask someone who was the lead of a show to come in and get paid a guest star salary. That's just disrespectful and stupid. So I would have loved to have done it. Would I want to do it as the good wife again and hold that on my shoulders? I have PTSDs from that time of never, ever. And I write about this in the book too. And I loved what you said earlier on, Danielle, you said, I don't think there's such a thing as balance because there isn't. And I have a whole chapter towards the end that's called The Good Wife, where I never felt while I was on that show, new mommy, new wife, amazing new part. I was just spinning plates and I wasn't looking back, I think, was I really present for any of it? Or was I just like checking off boxes? And I'm a person who likes a checked box. I'm just, I think it's having been born into a lot of chaos. I need a lot of calm around me and I need organization in order to feel like I can, I can start my day. (laughs) And I just never had that. But, you know, I would never say never because I just think that when you do that, you're closing off a side that maybe it'll be there. So the, does that mean you're not going to say never if I ask you, are we ever going to see Carol and Doug at home? I can't answer that. I don't think he will. I mean, I think when George and I came back, we were asked to come back in the 15th season. This was before The Good Wife. 
And uh, I always, this is my, you know, I think George is such a smart businessman on top of being a smart actor. But whenever I get asked to do something for ER, I just email him and go, you doing it? Because if you do it, I'll do it. I know if he's doing it, it's a smart, <laughs> it's a smart decision. So he goes, hell yeah, we owe our careers to that show. Let's do it. And I said, okay, great. And I flew out to LA and we, sh- we filmed for two days. So that was their 15th season. I left after the sixth season. So right, that's a lot of years later. And I'll tell you, it was heaven. We slipped right back into our, we'll always have that, he and I together, and I love him so much. But as he said, he was like, you know, who, he goes, who wants that? He goes like, I have gray hair now, I'm an old man. Who wants to see me making out with Hathaway? And I was like, I I hear you. No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. My uh, second to last question, but I, you know, feel like you have had the opportunity to work with a lot of men that we've rooted for, right? We've got George Clooney. We've got Mr. Big. We've got Josh Charles, Logan Hunsberger, Denny Duquette, like mixing up, obviously, because sometimes I I know their real names, but it's also like, it will always be Logan Hunsberger in my mind. Who have you had the most fun working with? Oh, that is an impossible question. Yeah, that's hard. So obviously George Clooney and I had the best time working together. We always got excited when the two of us got to do scenes together. It was easy. We finished each other's sentences. It was like, I always say, you know, it's like room temperature butter. You can just spread it on anything and it works, you know, (laughs) rather rather than right out of the fridge and you can't quite like spread it on your toast. And it's so, so disappointing. But that was you know, that was also Josh Charles. I mean, working with him on The Good Wife, it was seamless and exciting. And I was at a very different stage in my life too. But I have to tell you, I did a beautiful film. I think it's his best work ever personally, but I did a beautiful film based on a true story called Evelyn that I did in Ireland with Pierce Brosnan, where I played his girlfriend. I I can't love him. And he, he is... Truly just one of the most gracious, lovely people I've ever met. Granted, we only worked together for three months, so I don't know if you can compare. We'll we'll add him to the list. We'll take it. Yeah, I can't believe that I didn't add 007 to my list. Well, I'm sure if they were asked the same question, they would say you. So we'll leave it at that. Before we go, if we could have anybody on the show, who would you recommend? That's such a good question. Oh, the there's a plethora of people you should have on your show. I feel like my friend Kira Sedgwick has really changed her career by becoming a director. And I'm so impressed by her ability. I'm a big fan of hers. I would love to have her. Yeah. Carrie Preston is another one who I'm just so in awe of the fact that she is like, no, I really want to direct. And she's doing it. She just directed The Good Fight. She's all over the map directing and still acting. We would love to. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you, guys. Congratulations on everything. Uh, And uh, we can't wait to see the morning show continue to unfold. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.